I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Michael Lind. Michael Lind is a co-founder of the New America Foundation and policy director of its economic growth program. He is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and the Financial Times, and is also the author of a column for Salon. His books include The Next American Nation, What Lincoln Believed, and The American Way of Strategy. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Michael Lind. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm very grateful to uh, Zocalo, which has been uh, performing a great civic service, as well as uh, the Hammer Museum. Uh, listening to the themes of the forthcoming talks, there, there seemed to be a, a slight strain of morbidity. What does heaven look like? And, and how do doctors die? Uh, and, and although Land of Promise is an economic history of uh, the United States, uh, people are naturally concerned about what happens in the future, and, and so I, I'm, I'm afraid to report at this point uh, whether there is a sequel to the American economy is, is something that we will find out uh, in, in the next couple of years. Let's, let's hope this is the first in a series uh, and not a purely retrospective uh, look. Uh, <clears throat> it's a book of economic history, and uh, uh, before you run screaming towards the doors, uh, let me say that one of my challenges in writing it uh, was to do uh, something quite unlike the economic history that many of you may remember from grade school, uh, which was an incredibly tedious, dry-as-dust chronicle of uh, just one thing after the other. Uh, uh, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, which had something to do with slavery, and then a bunch of people got in covered wagons and, and went west, and, and uh, Henry Ford invented the assembly line, and the next thing you know, people were jumping out of windows on you know, Black Friday in 1929. And, and, and so it, it's uh, understandable uh, that, that uh, people would think of this uh, as something that can only be done through a dry chronicle. So one of my challenges was to tell this, not as a chronicle, but as a story. Uh, and, a, and a story with a few basic, simple organizing themes. Uh, three industrial revolutions, three American republics, and two great American traditions of political economy. That sounds complicated, uh, but I hope in the next few minutes uh, to show that, that it's actually uh, simpler. And uh, whether you accept my interpretation or not, at least it will show you that there's a way of thinking about uh, 200, 300 years of American economic history and political history as well. The two are inextricably linked uh, so that there, there's a pattern to it. Uh, let's begin with the three industrial revolutions. Uh, we're the, the, the Industrial Revolution, what Karl Polanyi, the sociologist, called uh, the Great Transformation, uh, is uh, something that is continuing even as we speak. It's the transformation of a world of uh, peasant farmers uh, into a world of uh, urban uh, wage-earning uh, proletarians, strictly speaking. That is, people who uh, make their living from wages rather than from growing uh, food out of the ground and uh, making their own materials. Uh, in, in parts of the world, in, in uh, uh, much of Africa, some parts of Asia, this process uh, is still well underway. It, it began in Britain and uh, Northwest Europe and then spread to the east coast of the United States. Uh, and the United States, uh, from a very early role, has, has played a major role in, in these concentric waves of, of uh, industrial uh, civilization uh, within this larger transition from an agrarian uh, economy to an industrial economy. There have been, according to historians, and, and different historians have different uh, uh, characterizations, uh, three, four, maybe five waves of uh, innovation. Uh, the great 
Austrian-American uh, economist uh, Joseph Schumpeter, and nowadays, I have to stress, he wasn't one of those Austrians. <laughs> he wasn't one of those libertarian Austrians. He just happened to be from Austria. Uh, uh, but he uh, taught at Harvard. He, he, more than any other economist in the 20th century, uh, he tried to root economics in uh, waves and phases of technological innovation. Uh, and he uh, uh, emphasized the fact that technological innovation tends not to be uh, a continuous process. That is, there is sort of a wave-like pattern. There are clumps. Some inventions, some machines, are more important than others. Uh, and, and that allows you to tell the story of these waves within the larger wave of industrial uh, revolution uh, in, a, in a fairly simple and straightforward way because there have not been that many transformative technologies or general purpose technologies uh, as uh, economic historians have come to call them. Uh, the first industrial revolution uh, by general consensus was based on the steam engine. Uh, the second industrial revolution on uh, two particular technologies which uh, uh, their formative years were actually the middle of the 19th century, the 1860s in particular, the internal combustion engine uh, and uh, the electric motor. Uh, and then the uh, third industrial revolution, the, the basic technologies uh, were those of the computer. Uh, and uh, the, the physical basis of it, like transistors, uh, was developed between the 1940s and the 1960s. What you see in all of these waves of industrial innovation is that the period of invention, when the actual gadgets are invented by somebody, is followed by 30, 40, 50 years of diffusion and deployment as, as people figure out how to use these new things. So, so this is a long-term process uh, in and of itself. And, and the great age of the automobile, for example, uh, even though it dates back to the 1860s and 1870s, uh, we did not invent it. It was invented by the Germans and, <clears throat> and developed by uh, the French. Uh, which is why you have terms like chassis, for example. Uh, but uh, the United States was the first society to deploy the automobile on a massive uh, transformative scale in the 1920s. Uh, in the same way, there is a time lag between uh, the development of basic computer technology and what we think of as the wave of the information revolution in the 1980s and in the 1990s, continuing to this day with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and personal computers and social media, uh, but all of that built on technology, hardware, which, which goes back way into the middle of the, the 20th century. So th those are the, the three industrial revolutions. The three republics, uh, I, I've, along with other historians, including Bruce Ackerman, uh, like to think of uh, the American history uh, as being uh, based on discontinuous regimes uh, separated by crises like the Civil War and Reconstruction and, and the New Deal and the Great Depression. Now, we Americans pretend that we are still living under the Constitution of uh, 1788, uh, you know, which we periodically rewrite while pretending to be faithful to the letter. We were constantly changing the spirit. The Supreme Court's been doing a little bit of that this week. Uh, and, and all through history, the French, uh, our, our fellow Republicans of the late 18th century, the, the French have been much more honest uh, they are now under their fifth republic. With a fifth republican constitution they came up with a, a couple of generations ago, uh, in addition to having five republics, they've had two empires, a directory, and a consulate. I may be leaving something out. Uh, there's a story about an American tourist who goes to Paris and asks a bookseller for a copy of the French constitution. 
Uh, and the bookseller gives him a withering look and says with great disdain, we do not sell periodical literature. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> but even, even though we pretend we're simply reinterpreting this document that, that they came up with in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia, in practice, we do reinvent America. We have had revolutions. We always pretend they're restorations of the original founding principle, but you know, the country's been rebuilt several times. Uh, first by Lincoln and his successors uh, in, in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, and then arguably by Franklin Roosevelt uh, and his successors, including so-called modern Republicans like Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon, uh, who accepted m many of the New Deal reforms and, and took them for granted, unlike some of their successors. Uh, so we have three industrial revolutions based on steam, internal combustion engine and electricity, and uh, information technology. Three American republics, I would argue, and, and I'll get into, into details, that we're living in the last days of the third American republic, and, and a number of us uh, may live to see a fourth one. Uh, could be better, could be worse. Uh, of course, we won't call it that, but it, but it will be radically different. Uh, and uh, so that leaves me with the two great traditions of American economics, really political economy, as they used to say, in the 18th and 19th century. And these, I argue, uh, are the Hamiltonian tradition and the Jeffersonian tradition, the Hamiltonian tradition named after Alexander Hamilton, uh, the first Secretary of Treasury of the United States and the cabinet of the first president, George Washington, uh, and the Jeffersonian tradition after Thomas Jefferson, the first Secretary of State, Hamilton's arch rival, uh, and towards uh, uh, the end of Washington's administration, Washington's rival too, because Washington pretended to be above the fray. But even though he was a southern slave owner like uh, Jefferson and, and many of the Jeffersonians, he consistently sided with Hamilton's vision uh, and, and sponsored it. Uh, the Hamiltonian vision, as I argue in Land of Promise, is that of uh, developmental capitalism. Both of these schools are well within the Lockean bourgeois consensus of, of Louis uh, Hartz. Uh, that is, the economy should be primarily based on private property. Uh, that our political institutions should be more or less democratic and republican. Uh, that's, that's something they share. Uh, but their visions of the economy and the role of business and government and uh, other agencies are, are quite different. Uh, the Hamiltonian tradition in American history uh, has, has been that of developmental capitalism, the developmental state, that is the government is seen not as simply a neutral umpire, setting rules and then uh, punishing infractions, uh, but, but more like uh, the coach of a team, uh, the team consisting of businesses and in some of the more progressive versions of organized labor as well, and in recent times of uh, research universities. Uh, and so like similar developmental traditions in Western Europe and East Asia, there's this sense that there's a common project of nation building uh, in which government, business, and as I say, sometimes organized labor, sometimes not, uh, play a, a role as, as uh, collaborators uh, and as partners. The Jeffersonian vision is quite different, and it's primarily a political vision rather than an economic vision. It's a, it's a vision of the economic preconditions of a democratic republic. Uh, with a, a particular early modern uh, uh, kind of slant to it. Uh, the Jeffersonians drew on a long tradition of pre-modern Republican thought, uh, going back to Aristotle, to Machiavelli, to uh, Harrington in Britain and various others, which said that you can only have a democratic republic if a majority of the citizens are independent. 
And initially in the Jeffersonian tradition, that meant they had to be independent farmers. Wage earners could not be good citizens uh, because they, they were dependent on the whims of, of their employers. Uh, and if they were unemployed, uh, then they would try to turn to government uh, or follow demagogic leaders like Julius Caesar and Oliver Cromwell in order to uh, loot the property of, of the elites and, and to, uh, in order not to starve. Uh, and so the Jeffersonian project, uh, which evolved over time and is continuing to evolve in, in the 21st century, uh, they lost the battle for an agrarian society, although as recently as the 1930s, uh, Robert Penn Warren and Alan Tate and a number of uh, eminent uh, Southern uh, literary figures uh, you know, said uh, during the Depression, see, we told you this whole industrial thing was a fad, right? Now we can go back to the farm. Well, you have about 2% of the U.S. population now uh, engaged in farming as, as their primary uh, career, although the agribusiness sector is, is larger than that. Uh, so that didn't work, but nevertheless, the legacy of the Jeffersonian tradition uh, is still very strong, uh, and you see it in this idea that uh, self-employment is civically and politically and morally superior to uh, uh, what was literally uh, the, the term proletarian. It has these Marxist connotations, but it goes back to Republican Rome. Proletarians were landless uh, laborers. Uh, and so the, the whole Jeffersonian project was to create a property-owning majority middle class, preferably a majority of, if not small farmers, uh, independently owned craftsmen, uh, small business people, uh, uh, and so on. And so, so this is not government versus business. It's actually uh, two different visions. Uh, the Jeffersonian tradition, in particular, is not libertarian. Now, the laissez-faire libertarians often invoke Jefferson, but that's just propaganda. Uh, neither the Jeffersonians nor the Hamiltonians have had any uh, scruple about using the power of government to promote their rival visions, this vision of national industrial development on the one hand and, and of preserving a society of small producers, uh, which is why historians call the Jeffersonian tradition the producerist tradition. That, that's the whole basis of it. Uh, so for example, the Hamiltonians uh, from the uh, early 19th century all the way up until uh, World War II uh, wanted to protect American industry, infant industries in particular, behind uh, uh, tariffs, Hamilton himself preferred subsidies, uh, uh, but the tariff became the tool of choice for promoting uh, American industries so that they could mature and compete with those of Britain, the first industrial nation, uh, which we were seeking to uh, overtake and, and did by the end of the 19th century. Uh, so free trade, free markets was sacrificed on behalf of American uh, industrialization by the Hamiltonian tradition. Uh, the Jeffersonians uh, being agrarians who wanted foreign markets for American crops, uh, whether they were staples like cotton uh, or uh, foodstuffs, uh, have, have tended to favor free trade, as agrarians often do. Uh, but at the same time, they wanted the power of government to be used to uh, rig the playing field in favor of small producers against big producers. Uh, and, and you see this uh, with uh, three particular policies from the late 19th century well into the 20th century, that, and, and these controversies go on to this day. One is antitrust in the Jeffersonian vision. The Hamiltonians have never liked antitrust uh, because they think that while there are indeed corrupt, crony capitalist businesses uh, in a modern industrial society, there really are legitimate increasing returns to scale, and, and in some sectors, 
you're going to have natural monopolies and oligopolies, which are not necessarily exploitative. So it, so it makes no sense to say we'd be better off having 25 aerospace companies instead of you know, Boeing and, and Airbus. Uh, or, or you know, little mom-and-pop steel mills or something like that. So, so the Hamiltonians really have never liked antitrust all the way back to the Sherman Antitrust Act of, of 1890. And, and they've dealt with this like Theodore Roosevelt who distinguished between the good trusts and the bad trusts. And we will punish the bad trusts for their behavior, but we'll, we'll let the good trusts uh, have concentrated power. Uh, the Jeffersonians, uh, including uh, uh, Louis, uh, Louis Brandeis, uh, who was one of the uh, most brilliant uh, thinkers in this tradition in, in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, Brandeis spoke of the curse of bigness and went so far as to argue that all big organizations are inherently inefficient. Uh, coming from the nonprofit world, I'm tempted to agree with him sometimes, uh, but I, I, it really is not the case in, in certain areas of manufacturing, for example. Uh, every single industrial country tends to have few big manufacturing corporations. So, so that he was clearly mistaken. But the policy results of, of the Jeffersonian tradition were seen uh, in antitrust, desire to break up big companies just because they were big, uh, really for political, not economic reasons, to have lots of small producers. Uh, Anti-chain store laws, uh, the controversy over Walmart versus uh, mom and pop stores, goes way, way back. In the 1920s, it was A&P the chain, which was the, the symbol of evil and depravity to uh, Jeffersonians, like Wright Patman, uh, my fellow Texan, a, a great populist uh, Democrat, uh, who wanted uh, essentially to tax chain stores out of existence in order to have independently owned stores uh, uh, dominate uh, retail trade. Finally, uh, in, uh, the Jeffersonians were behind unit banking laws. As some of you here are old enough to remember how difficult it was to cash a check in another city of your same state. Uh, not too uh, many uh, decades ago. Uh, that was because of Jeffersonian social engineering. Uh, uh, we continued to have banking panics generations after they had vanished from Canada, from Britain, from Western Europe, because uh, the Jeffersonians used state and federal law to make it illegal in most of the country for uh, uh, banks, so-called unit banks, literally one bank in a storefront in the town square, to open a branch in another city of the same state, much less in another state. Uh, and one of, one of it, th th this is relevant nowadays because the reason we have the FDIC uh, was that this was necessary to prop up these unit banks. In countries like Canada, which allowed branch banking from a very early period in the 19th century, you ended up, by the 20th century, with a small number of large banks that had branches everywhere. Uh, and they did not have panics, because uh, if a bank failed, then it could be incorporated as a branch and bailed out uh, by, by one of these uh, branch banks. So late in the 20th century, uh, there, there was a wave of deregulation that got rid of most of this unit banking stuff. And, and the result was the formation of mega banks. Uh, for, with bad consequences in some cases, you know, arguably good in others. Uh, but, but my point of, of this little brief history is that the Jeffersonians are, are by no means more laissez-faire in their attitude towards the state uh, than the Hamiltonians have been. Uh, what, what are the, uh, how do the parties relate to these? Well, traditionally, the Hamiltonian party has been uh, centered uh, in the older industrial and mercantile regions of the United States and, and New England and uh, the Northeast, the Midwest, uh, to some degree the West Coast, which was settled largely by New England uh, uh, people after, after uh, the War of 1840, uh, uh, after the Mexican-American War. Uh, uh, the 
Jeffersonian tradition has always been strongest uh, in the South, but also in the rural portions of the Midwest, although there have always been Jeffersonians in a place like upstate New York, so it's kind of a rural-urban thing as much as it is a regional thing. The parties have exchanged their constituencies for reasons that don't have that much to do with economics, it's more to do with race and culture since the Civil Rights Revolution and, and the cultural revolutions of the 1960s. Uh, so today, if you look at a map, you know, periodically, uh, um, journalists publish these maps showing how George W. Bush, the Republican, got all of the states that William Jennings Bryan, the Democrat, did you know, in the, in the 1896 election, and that Barack Obama's base is what used to be the Republican Party, from Abraham Lincoln all the way up to Dwight Eisenhower and, and Richard Nixon. So uh, it, it, it's actually much simpler than that. If you just ignore the party labels, you essentially have a northern Midwestern uh, Hamiltonian tradition uh, and a southern uh, Great Plains, Rocky Mountain Jeffersonian tradition, uh, which reflect the interest to some degree of the industrial uh, parts of the country versus uh, the traditional agrarian ones. Having said that, uh, as a uh, fifth generation Texan, uh, there have always been a number of us Southerners a minority, but a significant minority, and goes back to George Washington. It includes Henry Clay of Kentucky. It includes his uh, fellow Kentuckian, uh, come, uh, Illinois, and uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, who were uh, figures in the Hamiltonian tradition uh, and had a quite different vision uh, of what the country should be than, than much of the Southern elite, which preferred it to be a, with a weak federal government in a commodity exporting economy. And so, uh, uh, you know, I like to tell people that uh, uh, my interest in uh, the Hamiltonian tradition, it may seem strange for someone who was born a few miles south of where the People's Party, the, the agrarian populace, started uh, in the 1870s and 80s. Uh, but it comes from reflection on the Civil War, where you had uh, my region of the country uh, declared war on uh, what was already, in many respects, the most formidable industrial power on the planet. Uh, and then after they declared war on the United States, they realized that all of the factories that made the guns, the bullets, uh, most of the railroads, uh, most of the steel, uh, was outside of their borders. Uh, so some of us Southerners have reflected on this. Uh, not, not, unfortunately, not that many uh, to this day. And so you get something that's very, very strange in the industrial world. Uh, elsewhere, in Japan, for example, or Germany, uh, the more hardline militarist hawkish tradition also tends to be the pro-industrial manufacturing tradition for obvious reasons, right? Manufacturing is the basis of military power. It's not true in, in the South, uh, where the most hawkish people in American politics tend to be white Southerners, uh, who are also the most Jeffersonian in their opposition to government industrial policy. So, you know, not everyone has learned the lessons of, of the late unpleasantness. Uh, so we, we, we now have the elements for putting this story together. Uh, the industrial revolutions, the three republics, and the two traditions. Uh, and, and to make it all come together, uh, I propose that uh, we, we've gone through alternating phases. I wouldn't say cycles. This is not some kind of Nostradamus astrological uh, uh, you know, uh, a system or anything, and, and it sounds more schematic than it is. And in, in it's 150,000 word book, so it's considerably more nuanced than than uh, my my uh, telegraphed speech here. Uh, but when you have these great crises, which destroy an old republic and, and create a new one, uh, for the first 30 or 40 years, 
the Hamiltonians are kind of naturally in charge because they're, they're relevant. You know, you're trying to build a new system. Uh, and at that point, it's not a matter of left or right. The business elites, you know, and, and labor and so on in these periods, uh, they, they, they're clear projects that need to be done, the transcontinental railroad. Uh, you know, during, during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln diverted gunpowder from the war to the Transcontinental Railroad. He thought that this vast infrastructure project knitting together the Union was so important. Uh, uh, you get the interstate highway system, which was largely a brainchild of uh, President Franklin Roosevelt, who pushed it repeatedly. Uh, Eisenhower gets credit for it, rightly so, because he pushed it through Congress by saying that we needed it to defend ourselves from the Russians, and so Congress would, would, would pay for it. Uh, but, and so so there, there's kind of a consensus that there are just great projects. We have to put aside our differences. We have to rebuild the country after this crisis, be it the Great Depression, the Civil War. Uh, then you get the next generation, and I argue there tends to be a neo-Jeffersonian backlash. Uh, and part of it is, it kind of makes sense, you know, generations rebel against the previous generation, and there's a kind of exhaustion with great projects. Uh, uh, often the government and elites are kind of authoritarian or technocratic during these constructive periods. You know, they're just throwing aside niceties, mobilizing people, regimenting them for these national parts. So there's a kind of a libertarian backlash and a localist backlash. And uh, in different uh, periods, it, it's captured by the left so-called or the right, although I would argue the, these are, aren't terribly useful uh, uh, coordinates. Uh, so for example, uh, by the 1830s, uh, there was this uh, backlash of, of an even more intense form of Jeffersonianism that had been, been present with Jefferson himself. Uh, Jefferson was at his most radical uh, when he was out of power, denouncing the tyranny of the federal government and the boondoggles of, uh, that's a modern phrase, but of, of uh, Hamilton's scheme for national infrastructure, Bank of the United States, all of that. Once he became president, and this often happens, Say, well, you know, actually federal financing of infrastructure might make sense. And after the war, you know, in the War of 1812, uh, convinced uh, his successor, Madison, that maybe protecting American industries that could make war material, you know, that, uh, uh, that had been missing during both the Revolution and the Second War with Britain, well, maybe that made sense. Uh, so, so by the 1820s, uh, even a lot of the Jeffersonians had sort of come along to this Hamiltonian nation building program. Uh, it's really been the 1830s where uh, uh, you get this uh, epic conflict that I describe in the book, this battle between Henry Clay, the champion of the American system, the heir to Hamilton, uh, with the same basic project. The American system had three parts, national banking, federal financing of infrastructure, first canals and roads, and then later on railroads, uh, and also uh, government support for manufacturing. And uh, the Jackson and, and his followers in Congress uh, blocked all of these, uh, destroyed the Bank of the United States, which was a kind of, it was a central bank. It, it actually was a central bank. Uh, it was sort of a, a precursor of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and the result was, uh, it, it wasn't that you didn't get infrastructure and support for manufacturing, but that it was done on the state level. And this actually crippled the Southerners. I'm, I'm beating up on my, uh, uh, my fellow Southerners. Uh, but the enlightened states like New York and Massachusetts, they actually created their own local central banking systems to stabilize the economy. Uh, they invested in infrastructure projects like the Erie Canal, which made New York the dominant port uh, in the United States and, and uh, in many ways in the world to this day. Uh, so what was lost was uh, this happening on a national scale. So uh, uh, when the Jeffersonians 
uh, managed to block federal activism. You, it, you still have state-level activism, but the states that, that are constructive and prudent shoot ahead of the rest, and, and you get a kind of inequality within the country with some regions falling behind, others charging ahead. Uh, then, then again, with Lincoln and his successors, uh, you get this amazing uh, couple of decades of, of really revolution, even though we don't call it that. Uh, you get the destruction of slavery. Uh, you get the uh, rapid uh, completion of, of the first wave of industrialization of, of the U.S. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, whenever he was asked to describe his beliefs, he would always say a variant of, uh, you know, I'm an old-fashioned Henry Clay high-tariff Whig. And he was. The Whigs were the uh, Hamiltonian party of, of between the War of 1812 and the Civil War, uh, most of whose members became Lincoln Republicans uh, and, and uh, uh, dominated the core of the Republican Party well up until the, the time of Eisenhower and uh, before that of uh, Herbert Hoover. Uh, so the Republicans were the nation-building, <laughs> industrializing party in the late 19th century. Under William Jennings Bryan, uh, there was this agrarian backlash uh, and Bryan repeatedly invoked the sacred names of Andrew Jackson and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so these traditions I'm describing, it, it's, there are some uh, political uh, publicists who will go back and, and cherry pick from history and there's John Adams would have done this and you know, uh, uh, George Mason would have done that. Uh, these are real traditions, uh, generation after generation. Uh, and uh, I argue that the Hamiltonian tradition enters the 20th century through the progressive wing of the Republican Party, uh, symbolized by Theodore Roosevelt, whose uh, inspiration uh, was Abraham Lincoln, and, and repeatedly he says, we're just building on what Lincoln would do in this new industrialized urban uh, society. Uh, his uh, uh, cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, who worshiped him and modeled his career on him, literally following him as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Vice Presidential Candidate, Governor of New York, and then President of the United States, uh, was a Republican uh, all the way until his mid-20s, uh, something that the Democratic Party nowadays does not play up. Uh, he uh, exulted when McKinley crushed William Jennings Bryan, the hillbilly uh, populist. Uh, and uh, uh, it's not clear why uh, apart from the fact that his father had been a, a Northern Democrat, why he, he chose the Democrats. I read one interesting explanation lately. It was that he thought Theodore Roosevelt's sons would run as Republicans, and so that uh, he wouldn't be able to compete with them in the Republican Party. So kind of by chance, Franklin Roosevelt uh, goes into the uh, Democratic Party. A number of the New Dealers were progressive Republicans, like Harold Ickes, uh, who streamed into this party. And under Obama, in many ways, uh, this... Uh, uh, flow of progressive Republicans into the Democratic Party has been complete because if you look at the areas of the country that were the so-called Rockefeller Republicans, they're now the Democratic base, uh, even as the old William Jennings Bryan territory uh, what was that of the uh, uh, is now that of the the right-wing uh, Republicans. Uh, the present backlash, I argue, begins not with Ronald Reagan in 1980, but with Jimmy Carter in 1976, and this may surprise the younger people in the audience, but the uh, older ones will remember that he ran as a Jeffersonian candidate. He was the most conservative uh, Democrat to be elected to the White House since Grover Cleveland. Uh, he was a center-right figure from rural America, the peanut farmer from Plains, uh, who, who capitalized on this wave of exhaustion and revulsion against the Cold War and the disaster in Indochina and the corruption of the Nixon administration. And he promised a simpler 
life reminiscent of the older rural America. So, so th these are great historic changes. And, and Carter uh, deregulated most of the industries uh, uh, in transportation, uh, for better, I would argue, in the case of trucking, for worse, in, in the case of airlines. Uh, by the time Reagan became president, there's nothing left really to deregulate. Carter had done it all. Uh, so, so this is not a simple partisan story. You know, you, you tend to get uh, uh, these different traditions ascend and descend. And, and as I uh, said at the beginning, I think we're, th this neo-Jeffersonian paradigm, which has been embraced necessarily by Democrats like Bill Clinton, who said the era of big government is over, like Barack Obama, who has said things like, we know that only the private sector can create jobs, something that is simply not true. Uh, but to be successful in this climate, uh, even otherwise liberal Democrats uh, have had to, you know, sort of internalize this worship of the market, this disdain for big government, and all of this. Uh, uh, it is, I, th I think there's a general consensus, particularly since the crash of 2008, that if you compare the New Deal period, which ends in the 70s, uh, to the period since the 70s, uh, there's not much to recommend the latter uh, in terms of actual results. And so you can say, well, let's try harder and be even more anti-statist and more deregulatory and have even a more adversarial view of the proper relations between government, business, and labor. Or, as, as I suggest, you can say we, we can't return to the New Deal era any more than the New Dealers could go back to the era of Reconstruction or the people in Lincoln's time could go back to the early Republic. Uh, but you can revive what uh, is a tradition that's been in eclipse now for 30 or 40 years, uh, which is this uh, older Hamiltonian tradition uh, which comes in right-wing versions and centrist versions and left-wing versions. And, and if, if you leave with one thought in your head, that's what I think it would be. It's, it's not that America is divided between liberals and conservatives. It's divided between Hamiltonians, left-wing, right-wing, and centrist, and Jeffersonians, left-wing, right-wing, and centrist. Now, not all Americans. There are democratic socialists. There are Ayn Rand libertarians. But I'm talking about great, historic, multi-generational traditions. Uh, so if you use this schema, Herbert Hoover was a Hamiltonian of the right, Franklin Roosevelt of the center-left. But otherwise, they were very close in, in, in their view that business and government were or should be partners, uh, and to which uh, FDR added labor. Uh, if you look at Ronald Reagan, he's a, a Jeffersonian of the right. Uh, William Jennings Bryan, uh, who got votes from many of the same people, was a Jeffersonian of the left. Uh, but what unites their worldview really is more important than whether it's technically right-wing, left-wing, uh, or, or a centrist. Uh, so where does that leave us? I was astonished by the fact that uh, four years into the what is really a depression, the, uh, there's not been more of a revulsion uh, against what I think is this discredited model. Of, of the latest uh, neo-Jeffersonian backlash. Uh, I think in reflecting on why, I've concluded that it's in, a, in a strange way, it's actually the success of the New Deal, of, of the last constructive period, particularly unemployment insurance. Uh, because of unemployment insurance, those of us in the professional and, and uh, uh, other elite classes uh, who have not suffered that much uh, compared to high school educated, uh, uh, to young people coming out of college and so on, we don't see soup kitchen lines on the streets. You know, there's no sense of revolution in the air. And so in, the, in, that, in that sense, uh, the New Deal inadvertently anesthetized uh, the elite uh, against 
recognizing that this is indeed a crisis. Uh, having said that, uh, I will uh, conclude by predicting that this is indeed the end of the Third Republic. Uh, there will be a period of 10 or 15 or 25 years of turmoil. Uh, whatever emerges will be as different from the America that we're familiar with now as uh, the America of the 1950s was from that of the 1910s and, and the 1920s. Could be worse. Uh, there, there's no guarantee uh, that the, the previous three republics, for all of their faults, they've never eliminated oligarchy and corruption and injustice, but each one has been marginally better than the previous one. The second republic gets rid of chattel slavery. The third republic has minimum wages and unemployment insurance and, and basic uh, work, worker uh, protections. Uh, you can regress, you know, so, so there's no guarantee that the next American republic uh, will even be a republic. It could be, like, as, as in the case of France, a principate or an empire or a consulate or, or something more uh, authoritarian. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, my book has an optimistic title, and I'm, in the long run, I'm an optimist. Uh, I, I uh, like to quote Winston Churchill, who uh, during the darkest days of World War II, before the US uh, uh, threw its great uh, might into the conflict, uh, reassured his uh, fellow Britons uh, by saying, uh, the American people can be counted on to do the right thing when they have exhausted the alternatives. <laughs> Thank you. If you were to reference a Hamiltonian today, who would that be? I mean, if I were really, and is that the likely event in 15 years? There are a number of uh, figures, including John Kerry, uh, even Kay Bailey Hutchison from Texas, who really does fit more this old business class Republican model you know, than this kind of uh, Jeffersonian radical right, who have supported an infrastructure bank, which is a very uh, Hamiltonian proposal. Uh, it's Hamiltonian in the sense that you're trying to leverage private capital uh, as well as in some cases the sovereign wealth funds of, of uh, other countries uh, in order to channel it to rebuild our infrastructure, uh, uh, both repairing the decaying infrastructure, uh, but also investing in, in new infrastructure, universal broadband, for example. So among the parties, uh, it, it, the Democrats at this point uh, have a Hamiltonian strain in them. Uh, it's not the only one. Uh, it's been almost completely extinct in the Republican Party, largely because the Republicans have been captured by former Democrats. Uh, that is, the base of the Republican uh, Party now uh, consists of the right wing of the Democratic Party of most of the 20th century, the so-called Dixiecrats. Uh, many of them were opponents of the Civil Rights Revolution, of, of the Great Society. M many of them were, were bitter, bitter, vindictive enemies of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. Uh, and he tried to purge them in the 1938 congressional elections and was soundly defeated. Uh, so there's actually a, a direct line. If you look at uh, Texas Governor Rick Perry, for example, uh, he started as a Democrat. So he went from being a right-wing Democrat to a right-wing Republican without ever being a moderate. Uh, so, so again, you kind of have to put the party labels aside and, and look at what they're doing. Uh, uh, the, uh, the infrastructure bank, that, you know, that may, may die. You know, there, there, there's all kinds of opposition to it. Uh, but the basic idea uh, of uh, using uh, private uh, capital 
to invest uh, uh, in, in public investment in R&D and innovation is a very Hamiltonian idea. It can take bad forms. Uh, uh, Public-private partnerships have gotten a bad reputation in much of the country where it involves uh, really sleazy deals where you sell the highways or you lease the state capitol building to a corporation and then rent it back from them. Uh, so, so obviously these things can go wrong. Uh, there's a nightmare version of Hamiltonianism which becomes dysfunctional crony capitalism. Uh, just as there's a nightmare dysfunctional version of, of Jeffersonianism. But so I, I think there's no single figure in either party, but there are certainly proposals out there that fit the bill. Just thinking about what might happen in the future and what's been happening in the last few decades, and you touched on a little bit the, um, uh, you mentioned labor, but I think, you know, and I know you had time constraints tonight, and I'd, I'd be interested to just to hear a few words about the demise of unions and the future of unions and how, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this player in the drama that we're living in, uh, how you sort of see that uh, in, in the context of these different forces that you've been describing. Well, with, well thanks. I'm glad you asked because I'm, I'm glad to be able to uh, uh, talk about that for just a few minutes. Uh, I think I'm the only uh, author of a popular history of the New Deal has anything kind to say about the National Recovery Administration. This was the central initiative of the first uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt administration in the same way that healthcare reform was central to uh, uh, the uh, uh, Obama administration. It was struck down by the Supreme Court by Justice Brandeis uh, on Jeffersonian grounds. What the NRA did was uh, it tried to organize industries so that in return for relaxing antitrust laws, which had long been a Hamiltonian goal, uh, the industries would agree to negotiate with labor and have industry-specific minimum wages, industry-specific retirement plans, and so on. When that was struck down by the Supreme Court, uh, the country became very polarized. Roosevelt moved to the left in the 1936 election, and the Social Security in 1935, um, the, the minimum wages, all of this was passed as a matter of law, rather than what had actually been Roosevelt's preference, which is that it's negotiated between federations of employers and federations of uh, labor. Now, this system, uh, which conservatives will tell you was modeled on Mussolini's Italian corporatism. Uh, it's total nonsense. In fact, uh, most of the Western European democracies with strong labor movements have had the equivalent of the NRA from the 30s or the 40s to this day. Uh, where, and this is why labor is in such bad shape. I'm telling you tonight, that is the standard history is wrong. The standard history says it was the Taft-Hartley Act after World War II, it was Reagan's firing of PATCO, air traffic, no. The only countries in which uh, labor uh, still plays a strong role uh, are where uh, you have national or regional bargaining between uh, federations of employers and national or regional unions. Uh, there is no example of a country in the entire industrial world in the last century where unions have built up their strength by site-based organization, plant by plant, store by store. It just can't be done, right? And so, uh, if anything, that makes me more pessimistic about the future of organized labor because unless you have this peak bargaining between the employer federations and the labor federations, there's just no way no matter how favorable the congressional legislation is, you're going to organize the nursing home industry 
and undercapitalized, decentralized industry by strikes after strikes at different individually owned nursing homes. It, it just can't be done. Uh, and so that's a, that's a different story, so somewhat more pessimistic. Uh, the optimistic part is uh, where you have had successful labor movements, you have had labor parties or social democratic parties where this was seen as a mass movement. Uh, the organized labor was part of it. Uh, and one of the things that has actually crippled the center left historically in the United States was organized labor, going back to Samuel Gompers, the head of the American Federation of Labor in the early 20th century, had a kind of equivocal view of parties and politics. You know, there's always a strain that said we should be apolitical. We're just after benefits for our members, who in the case of craft unions were not even everybody who worked at the factory. It was just particular skilled trades. Uh, there's been another social democratic wing that said, no, we want to partner in this general uh, project of social reform. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I hope to have complicated uh, the question. My question is with regard to how this framework fits into our uh, system of governance here in California. Uh, we used to have a Hamiltonian tradition, let's say under Governor Brown of the uh, aqueducts and the master plan for higher education, right. whatnot. And then we went into this sort of neo-Jeffersonian role of Prop 13 and, you know, let's boost up the cities and the state really sucks and we don't want to give tax money to the state and we don't want to fund higher education at the state. We have a discussion of high-speed rail, for example. That's a very clear state-building project, Hamiltonian view versus Jeffersonians. And the Jeffersonians, some of them are Republicans, some of them are Democrats who are trying to uh, take this down. What do you think? At least the Anglos who settled California tended to be from New England and the upper Midwest, and they, they had this kind of New England good government civic tradition. It's quite different uh, from that of the, the Scots-Irish Okies uh, who came uh, uh, during the Depression and afterwards, and so you get this kind of regional uh, thing fought out within, within California. Uh, I think it's very difficult in California and in the United States as a whole uh, to mobilize people absent inspired leadership or, or obvious overwhelming threats. Like, let's remember, uh, the New Deal was fairly limited. It was really World War II uh, that allowed the Roosevelt administration to do a lot of the infrastructure things, uh, uh, pipelines and ports and harbors. And, and uh, the federal government during World War II, I, I devote an entire chapter of my book just to World War II because usually economic history skipped from the New Deal to the 50s. Uh, actually, the World War II is more important really in building modern America than the New Deal was. The government built with the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, a, a state bank, it built much of the 1950s uh, industrial infrastructure and then after the war it sold it uh, for very low prices to private enterprise. It, it was the biggest mass privatization of, of socialist factories, you know, until Yeltsin and, and Russia after the, the Cold War. We don't think of it that way. Uh, but here's the political problem. There have been three depressions, great depressions, since the Industrial Revolution began in the 19th century. You don't get depressions before you have mass production. When you have an economy where the village blacksmith makes a, a skillet now uh, in a horseshoe, you know, then for different customers on demand, you don't get vast piles of inventory and a mismatch between demand and, and production. You, you get famines 
when the crops fail, but you don't get business cycles. Uh, business cycles show up the moment you get mass production based on uh, a powered industry. Uh, and the first one was from the 1870s to the 1890s, called the Long, it was the original Great Depression, that's what they called it at the time. Uh, it's called the Long Depression by historians now. Then you get the 1930s, and this is really a depression, uh, even though we call it the Great Recession. Uh, the, the previous two, in most industrial countries, saw parties of the radical reactionary right come to power, movements towards nationalism, tribalism, xenophobia, protectionism, trade war, and empire. Uh, and there is a logic to this. Uh, when the economy is either contracting or it's growing much more slowly than people expected, within countries as well as among countries in the world, the haves want to protect what they have, and they want to force the weaker and less organized, whether they're people beyond the borders or within the borders, to swallow the loss to the economy. And this is what's going on. So we have this zero-sum politics in states like California, in the United States as a whole, uh, where it's, I'm going to keep mine, and you're, the, the creditors want the debtors to swallow the housing costs, the, the homeowners want the taxpayer to swallow it. Everyone is trying to shove the costs of adjustment to somebody else. And exactly the same thing is happening on a global scale. Uh, every industrial country, including the United States, now plans to export its way out of this recession by selling more products than it imports, including the Obama administration. We're gonna double exports. Uh, every industrial country, including China, also wants to help its exporters by devaluing its currency. Well, if everyone is trying to have an export surplus and devalue the currency at the same time, this mathematically it just can't work. This is impossible. Uh, so uh, how can you overcome this? Well, historically, uh, it's been fear. Uh, it, it's, it's been fear of an external threat or of, of a militants from below, and those factors so far uh, have, have not been sufficient. If, if we are, however, in what I suspect is, is a generational crisis, not simply, you know, when I see the word recovery, what are these people thinking? We're never going to recover. The world before 2008 is dead. It is gone. It is never coming back. The world is going to be different. Uh, and the, the elites in Germany and the United States and China, they think, well, this is a rough patch and then we'll go back to, no, that world is never coming back. We should be talking about renewal, rebuilding, reconstruction, not recovery. Uh, we recorded you about six years ago and I'm curious about the changes in your life in the last six years and uh, your take on our history, and uh, it, more importantly, on where you think we're going. You've started to allude to it, but I, I'd like a little bit more embellishment. Well, I've become much more skeptical than I was then of uh, a, a lot of things that everyone took for granted uh, in Washington and New York and in, in university campuses uh, about self-regulating markets. Uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of bipartisan support in the Clinton years as well as in, in the, the Bush years on each side, 41 and 43, uh, for this idea, for example, uh, that Americans were uh, uh, losing out by not investing private savings in the stock market because you can reap these gains. Uh, and, and the greatest mistake in my career was to endorse this idea in a book I co-authored with uh, Ted Halstead called The Radical Center. Uh, overall, I think most of the prescriptions hold up. Uh, but you may recall at the time, this was something President Clinton had considered. Uh, in retrospect, uh, what, were, what were people smoking, right? Uh, you know, if you have two stock market crashes in a decade, why all talk of 
of not only privatizing Social Security, but even of means testing it. Uh, so I've completely reversed my, my view on uh, social insurance. Uh, what we should be doing is expanding Social Security and paying for it by cutting back on 401ks, which are a complete ripoff. Uh, they're extremely volatile. Uh, the fees are, are stolen from uh, these unsuspecting investors, including many of you in the audience, possibly. Uh, uh, and so it, it, it really is, is kind of amazing. And, and again, this gets back to why, given the fact that you've had these epical, earth-shattering events, does the elite not uh, admit that maybe some of these ideas of 1985 and 1992 and 1998 were, were mistaken? Uh, and my, my theory about that is, I have a theory for everything, as you can see. Uh, give them a few more years. Uh, I think right now, a lot of people thought that when Obama was elected in 2008, that was like 1932, and he would be Roosevelt and so on, and, and I, I sort of hoped for this. Uh, what, if what if 2008 was really 1929, right? If you look at uh, the Hoover years, uh, both sides, not just the you know, Hoover Republicans, but even their Democratic uh, critics, you know, every time there was some good news and the stock market would go up a little bit, and they'd say, oh, well, the worst is behind us. You know, uh, uh, recoveries around the corner. It took until 1931 when events in Germany and Central Europe, uh, the collapse of the Credit Anstalt Bank in uh, Vienna, and then a wave of contagion spreading from Germany to the rest of the world, plunged the world even deeper into depression. Uh, if you look around the world today, and, and I'm cautioning you, I'm, I don't want to sound like one of those people in the ads and the, in the magazines, you know, trying to like sell everything, buy gold. You know, uh, uh, you know, send send one hundred dollars for why the apocalypse is near. Uh, but, but it's just it's hard to see in Europe, North America, or Asia what the locomotive of growth is going to be when the governments are, are carrying out counterproductive policies simultaneously. Uh, so uh, now the thing is. Uh, elites, even plutocratic, out of touch, undemocratic elites, do have an instinct for self-preservation. And, and once uh, they reach this point, I like to call it capitulation. That's the term used in real estate. It's when the homeowner realizes you're going to sell your house for a loss, but you need the money, right? We haven't reached that stage of capitulation. But if we get into year four, five, six, seven of this thing, and it's clear that this is a long-term historical transformation, it's, we're not going back. At that point, I think uh, people who, we, who might surprise us today, I mean, who knows what a President Romney would actually do in 2015 or 2016 under the pressure of events. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt ran in 1932 denouncing uh, Herbert Hoover for excessive government spending and promised to balance the budget. Abraham Lincoln started the Civil War offering to promise the South that they could keep their slaves until the 20th century. So events do, do sort of push politics, and, and I think we're going to see some dramatic events. I actually would like you to expand a little even further on the last couple of answers that you've given about the future. You know, I think uh, many of us are very, are, the economy is in such an uh, unprecedented difficult uh, environment right now that uh, many of us are sort of wondering how, where does it go and how do we get out of this? So the way that I want to frame the question is this, um, it's about solvency. You know, many on the right constantly talking about the debt crisis, I frame it more as a solvency crisis. And, and the way I look at it, uh, I'm looking at the three layers of the economic system, let's say the corporate 
the corporate layer, the government or public agency layer, and the household layer. And it seems to me that obviously the corporate layer is very well capitalized, very well funded. Um, but of course, that's the least American sector of the economy, group of the economy, because it's a global right. system, right? But, but for the public agencies, for the American government, for the rest of us, the household sector, we're completely American. And those parts of the American economy are having a solvency crisis. We're overloaded with debt. And my question is, how do you see that being resolved, if at all, or where is that going? I would take a somewhat different angle. I would say the reason we have all of these problems uh, is a lack of wages and purchasing power at the bottom. Uh, it's, it's not a matter of government spending. Uh, if wages had kept up with economic growth, uh, the, the budgets of the federal government and of, of states like California would be in much, much better shape today. Uh, what happened is, as uh, income was channeled, most of the gains from growth to a smaller and smaller number of people, something that's familiar now, at the same time their taxes were cut. Uh, I think there are real serious problems uh, in terms of policy, not just in terms of politics, with, with just simply thinking you can soak the rich. Uh, after taxes, you know, uh, in order to pay for everything. What you need to do is reconsider remuneration. Uh, Jacob Hacker uh, has popularized the term uh, pre-distribution. He really means distribution, but pre-distribution rhymes with redistribution. So, uh, but whether you call it pre-distribution or distribution, it's how the gains of growth are assigned between shareholders, managers, and employees in the first place. Uh, and between sectors, between the service sector, for example, and the manufacturing sector. That's the conversation we should be having. Uh, and the thing is, among economists you know, who, who are not diehard libertarians, even among a lot of Republican economists who basically accept Keynesian analysis, bad things happen when there's too much money at the top and too little at the bottom. So for example, in a mass production industrial economy, lots of money at the bottom means lots of demand for consumer goods, durable goods, appliances, you know, computers, iPods, et cetera. Uh, rich people, uh, to use Keynes's term, have a much lower propensity to consume. There are only so many houses and yachts and so on that you can buy, uh, so as more and more money goes to them, they're gonna try to preserve or increase their wealth. It's perfectly rational for individuals, uh, and they do so often by speculating in assets. Picasso paintings and, you know, uh, uh, pork-bellied pigs, you know, wh whatever it is, that you think will appreciate in value, real estate, stocks, uh, so that it's no coincidence, according to a lot of economists, that when you have this very top-heavy plutonomy, which is a term uh, uh, actually used by some Wall Street uh, analysts for a very top-heavy economic system, you're going to get much more volatile economies, because a lot of money is being used to speculate in emerging stocks now, in oil uh, tomorrow, and so on. And, and it fluctuates and it's a lot more volatile than if it's going to people who are going to go out and spend it uh, on consumer goods. Uh, the other thing you've seen is, and this is really remarkable in history, you have to go back to the early years of Stalinism in the 1930s to see governments deliberately keeping the wage share growth below economic growth. The Germans did this. Uh, in the last decade to promote their uh, export surplus. China did it in a truly draconian manner. Uh, the Chinese have, now the, the numbers are somewhat dubious, but, but if you look at the numbers, the Chinese have the lowest wage share of, of uh, 
the GDP, really, you have to go back to Stalin's crash industrialization program, uh, where all of the gains are, are going to the state, and none of them are going to the people. So these export-oriented economies like Germany and China, Japan uh, had that model, it's kind of broken down. Uh, uh, what they've done is they were suppressing the wages of their workers in order to, that they're, you can plow these profits into building more uh, industrial export sector. At the same time, on the opposite side of the ledger, the countries like the United States, which were consuming all of the goods, running these huge trade deficits, borrowing the money to pay for the imported goods, we're also suppressing the wages, right? Wages have not uh, gone up in, in, compared to economic growth in either the trade deficit countries or the uh, uh, trade surplus countries. So this is a global phenomenon in first world countries and third world countries alike. Uh, the workers, whether they're in, in rural China or in middle America, uh, have not been sharing the gains of growth. Well, where have the gains of growth gone? As I said, they've gone to a, a very small elite uh, who, again, perfectly rationally from their point of view, it's not that they're diabolical, uh, they're going to try to uh, invest that money in whatever they think is going to get them 17% returns, right, leading to a series of asset bubbles. Uh, and so what's the answer to this? Well, uh, reform if possible, revolution if necessary. Uh, you know, I, 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 I realize... I realize that uh, standing in, in uh, L.A., uh, you know, near the university, the term re revolution may have somewhat other connotations than the ones I have in mind, but societies do break down. Every couple of generations in North America and Europe and Asia, uh, you get uh, the, the, the revolutionary firebrands of one generation uh, have the uh, corrupt mafiosi and the nepotistic uh, princelings of the third generation, uh, so th there is a cycle, you know, and at the end of the day, uh, one of the, I, I come from Washington, I'm in the nonprofit sector, and what we're supposed to do is pretend that power has nothing to do with anything. Uh, and that if you, get, if you get enlightened people together uh, at the Aspen Institute, uh, enlightened rich people, and then you come up with technocratic solutions, then moderate Republicans and, and center-right Democrats and it will all agree, and there, there's some 10-point technocratic plan but I think what got us into this mess is that ordinary people around the world, in, in both industrial countries and industrializing countries, uh, did not have enough bargaining power uh, in order to capture the gains of growth. And quite apart from any kind of social justice reasons, this really messes up an industrial economy. It's just not good for the system. So uh, now this doesn't lead me to Marxist conclusions because I think we would be better off if there really were a self-conscious capitalist class, because it would try to preserve itself. It would not commit suicide. Uh, it, it would uh, you know, realize, as some of the more enlightened capitalists did in the post-war period, that you have to make concessions to labor, you have to have welfare states, and so on. Uh, clearly, there is no such class. There are a lot of individuals out for themselves, you know, and, and uh, when they die, you know, who cares? Après nous le déluge. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see, I see part of it. And, it. and the thing is also it will not be a global revolution. There's nothing Marxist about this. Uh, it's not going to be rural Chinese and solidarity uh, with American uh, uh, people in the healthcare sector. Uh, these battles are going to be fought country by country. And they'll be won in some countries and, and lost in others. Uh, but, but I think that's what's going to, uh, what it's going to take because I think that's the underlying cause of... Uh, 
uh, a lot of the volatility in the economy. It's just uh, uh, the money is at the top, and it's, not f uh, it's messing up the system. Is America uh, the most powerful economic uh, country in the world, and what can we do to lead uh, this rapidly growing global economy? We, we have in our minds this, this kind of false notion we've inherited from the 18th century that there was a Roman Republic and it rose and it became an empire and then it fell and then that was it. That, the, uh, that, that actually is kind of irrelevant. Uh, 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 as I said, you know, the system goes through uh, upheavals periodically, uh, but it tends to emerge in a, in a stronger fashion. Uh, the United States also compared to its rivals, like uh, let, let's just take the next three biggest economies in, in the world. Uh, in terms of population and GDP, China, Japan, and uh, Germany. Uh, Germany and Japan have really fundamentally serious demographic problems. Uh, uh, in the case of Germany, absent much higher immigration, which the Germans have very great troubles dealing with for historical cultural reasons, they will shrink, their population will shrink according to some estimates by a quarter every generation. Uh, Japan, uh, a newspaper recently calculated when the, Japan, the Japanese Adam and Eve the last man and the last woman of Japanese descent, they calculated they would exist in 3,000. And you know, abs again, absent either a reversal of fertility or uh, uh, immigration. The United States, uh, we, we've had problems. Uh, we've had problem, uh, uh, I think, in particular, accepting a huge wave of relatively poor immigrants in the last generation, mostly from, from south of the border. But apart from that, uh, the US is, is uh, you know, as a nation of immigrants and the descendant of immigrants, uh, uh, despite you know occasional uh, uh, frictions, uh, is in a much better position uh, demographically in the long run uh, than the other industrial countries. If you look at China, it has successfully emulated uh, Japan and the other East Asian countries in having a state-sponsored crash program of industrialization, which in fairness is kind of a Hamiltonian program of state-sponsored industrialization on steroids and LSD. Uh, and, and that can work in the short run, catching up. Uh, the problem is, for political reasons, once you've built up these infant industries into world-class industries, they, they want more subsidies still, even though they don't need them. Right? So even though it made sense to have the training wheels on the bicycle, they never want to take them off. Uh, and this was a big uh, a, a debate in the United States a century ago. Uh, as early as uh, William McKinley, uh, in his last speech before he was uh, shot, uh, President McKinley, uh, uh, succeeded by Theodore Roosevelt as vice president, said, we, uh, we, we're now the leading industrial country in the world. We actually have to consume more. Uh, you know, we, we've succeeded, so we need to change course. Uh, China needs to change course. Uh, raise the wages of its workers, create a domestic market uh, for its products, and not just focus on exports. Uh, but the problem is you, had, you have, and, and Germany's kind of like this, Germany and China uh, and Japan uh, before its present troubles, they act as though they want to be little, small, Nordic export economies, right? But when you're a gigantic uh, regional or continental economy, you actually do have to have a, a consumer domestic base. You can't simply... Uh, uh, target other people's uh, consumers. So I think when you put uh, the, the challenges that the Germans and the Japanese have uh, demographically with what is really a political challenge, uh, and I think it's going to be nasty uh, because 
uh, when the United States went through this upheaval, going from an export-oriented protectionist economy to being uh, post-war, to liberalizing its trade and, and building up its domestic market and the wages of its workers under the New Deal in the 40s and 50s and, and 60s, we were able, it, it, there were bloody clashes in, in the streets between company goons and, and militant labor people, uh, but we had a democratic system, right? Uh, how this is going to play out uh, in a Communist Party autocracy where the state-owned enterprises uh, are funneling money to the princelings of the older generation of, of uh, corrupt uh, uh, one-party people, you know, it's a much more fragile uh, system. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in that sense, I think that, you know, you, you can come up, however, with a kind of a dystopian vision, and I hate to leave you with this, but it's something to think about, uh, uh, which is that in the 21st century, you may see a new kind of state. Uh, in the last couple of hundred years, you've had nation states where everyone was sort of first world, uh, and then you've had these big but backward countries like China and India, which even in GDP, they were always the fourth or fifth largest, even in 1950 and 1900, because they have so many people, but they were desperately poor people. What you're seeing now with China and India is countries where if you have a billion people, a billion and a half people, and you have uh, one-tenth of 1.5 billion people is, is sort of first world, uh, middle class, that's twice the size of Germany, the biggest European uh, uh, country. Uh, so you have a middle class, which even though it's a minority uh, within this colossal nation state, uh, it's enormous by global standards. Uh, and, and I think our challenge as Americans, as we grow, as, as we're expected to grow in the long run, beyond 320 million, maybe to 400 million, 500 million, uh, is that we don't recapitulate that pattern. So we have a first world America and a third world America coexisting within the same borders. Uh, but, but that clearly is a pattern elsewhere in the world. It's, it's not inconceivable uh, in this country. So uh, I'm trying not to depress you and, and just be assured you don't need to go buy guns and gold. Uh, not quite yet. Uh, uh, if you want to buy my book, I wouldn't object. Uh, you, you can use it for firewood after the apocalypse. So, uh. <laughs>